This morning's scripture is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, we're starting the sermon early today, which means I get a good 45 minutes. No, I'm kidding. You know me, I don't preach that long necessarily. Uh, a hard topic today. Um, uh, it, it, it won't be, I guess today's standards of PG aren't necessarily that great, but it won't be anything above G, I guess. I don't know. Um, but we're, we're, we're talking about, uh, again, our call to follow Christ, right? That's the theme that we find in Ephesians, who we are in Christ and our identity and such things. But let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, you are an amazing God. That you would call us, that you would make us your own children, that you would be all that we need. Father, we confess, though, how often we think we need other things. We, we, we want something else. We, we look for other things to satisfy us. I pray, Lord, this morning through song, through prayer, through your word, through the table, you would call us to you to run to the cross, to keep company with you. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters who gather all across this city as well, that your name would go forth, that you would be made much of this morning, Christ. Lord, that we would remember it is not about us, it is about you. And this morning we join in a song that goes outside of these walls, crosses the globe, and echoes into eternity. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, so I have a story about Rhett, who is my youngest. Knox did the same thing, and if you have kids, they probably did the same thing. And actually, when you were a kid, you probably did the same thing. How, ma- how many can remember mimicking or imitating their mom or dad getting ready or doing something, right? Like I can remember standing in the mirror with my dad in a toy shaver and pretending to shave, right? So what Rhett does right now is I'll be in the bathroom and I got a comb and I'll brush out my mustache and he's got a little comb and he'll brush his cheeks as well, pretending that he's got a mustache and it's, it's the cutest thing. And we've all done it, right? Because to some degree, that's who we are. We imitate. Our kids imitate, right? Now, th- there's the worst kind of imitation, right? When your kid catches you saying something and then they say that at the worst possible time, Right? Yeah, people get that, right? Or you have those moments where you're doing something and you say something and all of a sudden you freeze and you're like, 
oh my gosh, I am my mom. I, I am my dad, right? Like, you, you know, as much as we say, I will never do that, sure enough, the next minute, that's what we do, right? Well, Paul is reminding us that to imitate God is the best thing that we can do. We are going to imitate, imitate God then. That's, that's where he begins this, okay? And so as we get into the passage, I'm going to break it up into verses 1 and 2, verses 3 and 4, verses 5 and 6, and 7. What I want you to see is a theme that is consistent to Paul in, in his writings and in Ephesians is he, he regularly grounds or roots the commands that he gives in Christ, It finds its root always in Christ. It finds its place always in Christ. And it's no no different here. Because what Paul is doing is he's setting up a a, a juxtaposition. He's setting up two different things. He's setting up between how we ought to love versus the love our surrounding culture uses. See, Paul begins with the image of what True love looks like true love. Obscure reference there. Not, maybe not so much. I watched that movie so many times growing up in youth group. It wasn't even. Anyway, he sets up the image of what true love looks like in Christ. He sets up the image that Christ gave himself up for us. A sacrifice. A self-sacrifice. He begins with this image of true love because we need to know what true north is. Because if we don't know what true north is, we are not going to know how far we have deviated off of true north. Even, uh, even to the smallest degree, right? When you start small, but eventually that trajectory gets further and further. And so if you don't know where true north is, we, we lose sight of how far we've deviated from what we're called to. So he begins by setting up rightly ordered love, what, what true love looks like. And he sets it against disordered love. So he points to the self-sacrifice of Christ for the model of the love that we are called to walk with. Walk in love. And he gives us a visual. He says Christ was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice. And he was that sacrifice for us, right? He did willingly offer up himself out of love for us, his dear children. It's a fragrant offering. So this is the way of love that Paul talks about, that he calls us to. This is how we are to imitate God. And that word imitate, the Greek, it's where we get the word for mimic. To mimic, to copy closely, to repeat, to follow, step by step, as you know, a dad you know, pounces through the snow and creates those footprints, and then the kid comes after and follows in those footsteps to mimic. It's not a bad thing. It's the way that we were designed. It's not a matter of asking, do we mimic? It's a matter of asking, who do we mimic? Who are we imitating? So Paul sets up this this rightly ordered love, Christ's self-sacrifice, a love that is the constant pursuit of the otherness in someone else, the constant pursuit of otherness in someone else, a love that serves others, 
I love that if you look at the Greek word for agape that is given despite the lack of merit, that seeks the highest good of the one loved. This is Christ's love for us. He loves us to and through the cross. And that's what, call, that's what Paul calls us to. Rightly ordered love. And then he turns to the perversion of love. The vice that we would call lust. Paul turns from self-sacrifice to its exact opposite of self-indulgence. From genuine love to counterfeit love. And so if, if, if love is the constant pursuit of the otherness in someone else, lust, counterfeit love, is the constant pursuit of mindness. Mindness in someone else. Rather than asking, what can I give? How can I give? How can I seek the highest good of the other person? It gets twisted and it gets perverted and it gets manipulated into, what can I get? How can I get? How can I seek my highest good? And we, it's, it's saying, you need to change for me. It's saying, if you don't shape up, if you, don't, if you don't follow the things that I, I need you to follow, that's wrongly ordered love. That's, that's counterfeit love. And we've got to be honest with ourselves because we're somewhere on that spectrum. A, a healthy self-evaluation of where we are on that spectrum is, is worthwhile to ask. But Paul digs deeper here and he focuses on two aspects in verses 3 and 4. He looks at conduct and then he looks at speech. He looks at actions and then he looks at words. And understand that this this isn't an exhaustive list. This isn't him grabbing everything. And it's not a a random list in the sense of, well, you know, I'm going to talk about this and then I'm going to talk about this and then I'm going to talk about this. They all work within this theme of disordered love. They all work with this in, in this theme of self-sacrifice versus self-indulgence. And so Paul kind of is repeating himself, but really what he's doing is he's, he's using different words to cover everything. In essence, when he, when he says, in the conduct aspect, when he's talking about conduct and he says sexual immorality, any kind of impurity or of greed, he's moving from action to thought to heart. He's driving the nail deeper. In essence, he's doing what Christ did, right? Think about the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, you've, you, you say you've never killed anyone? Do you hate your brother? Right? He's driving it from action to thought to heart and to motive. So when, when he talks about sexual immorality, that Greek word there, pornea, it refers to sexual activity of any kind outside of the biblical standard of marriage. Now, I shouldn't have to unpack that any more than that. If I do, go ask your mom and dad, okay? He, he's talking about action, activity. And, and a brief history lesson. Um, it, we may think culturally we're in a very inundated sec, sexual culture, and we are, but it was no different to, to their time period. The only major difference, actually, was the concept of sexual identity. That's a creation of the 19th century. But the, the, the impurity and the sexual immorality were just as rampant as they are today. 
So, so Paul is calling out action. And some of us could go, Phew. never cheated on my wife. Never committed physical activity outside of the biblical marriage. I'm good. He drives the nail deeper, though. Any kind of impurity is a thought issue, is a moral issue. And then when he digs down into greed, it's a heart issue. And greed here is not, well, you know, okay, left field, hey, let's talk about greed for money, greed for stuff. No, no, no. He's, he's talking about greed for someone else. Greed for someone else's body. It's selfishness to the extreme degree for that which is not yours. Lust, you see, is rooted in greed. And it rears its head when we take that lingering look. It rears its head when we have the thought of maybe I married the wrong person and I'm more compatible with this person. It rears its head when we think we know what's best for our relationships and our sexuality. Greed at its heart is not being content with what God has given you. And, and to some degree, this is where I want to acknowledge the, the elephant in the room. Francine, happy birthday. Sorry, that's a Zootopia quote. If you've ever seen that, you know that line. I'm trying to bring a little levity before I swing the hammer. Um, we, we may be able to walk past Paul's, Paul's first imperative in verse 3. Sexual immorality. We may not be physically engaging in sexual activity outside the biblical uh, the, the biblical standards of marriage. But where's our mind? Where's our heart? And the big issue I want to hit on today is we live in a culture that accepts pornography on a whole different level. Whether in the church or outside of the church, do you understand that the, 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 the stat is one in three men are addicted to pornography and one in four women are addicted to pornography? We have a disordered love problem. We have a greed problem. Not just in our pocketbooks, but in our hearts. And I don't know necessarily what the ratio would look like here in this room, but we need to address our hearts and our minds. We need to ask the question, where is my heart? Who am I mimicking more? Christ or the culture? And understand, it's not a victimless activity. It destroys people. It destroys marriages. I read a stat that said pornography increases marriage infidelity by 300%. 300%. And one in three and one in four are addicted to it. Now, I know my past. To be honest, I didn't need someone to tell me it's wrong. I didn't need someone to tell me it's sinful. I didn't need someone to tell me that I was guilty. I knew I was guilty. What I needed was someone to show me victory. Someone to show me hope. Someone to have accountability with. 
And so you know what? Even as disheartening as it is to hear one in three and one in four, you know what that means? You are not alone. There are others who understand the shame cycle. There are others who understand the pull it has on our hearts away from true north. So I'm encouraging men's ministry and women's ministry and life groups, create the conversation. Foster openness. Foster avenues for accountability so that healing and victory and accountability and hope can flow in those places. Let's stop talking about the shallow stuff. Let's dig down to the heart. And, and if you're uncomfortable sharing that maybe in the men's ministry or the women's ministry or the life group, there's outside help as well. The Barnabas Center is a local group in our area that offers programs for men and for women to find healing and find hope in these avenues. And, I, and I'll, I'll put Stonebridge on the line. If, if, if cost is a problem for a program like that, we will help you find healing. We will help you. Because I know I don't want that to be an excuse to not change. I don't want that to be an excuse to not get healing and victory in your life. I think, I think the AA model is, is a great model for this and saying, it's been so and so, so long since, since I have. And, and, and to some degree, right, that's structured around those that maybe this isn't an issue for anymore, to be a help to others, to share your story, to offer yourself up to be an accountability partner, and to be a hope for those around you. This is rightly ordered love. This is being in the constant pursuit of the otherness of someone else. Now, more could be said here, but I say you are not alone. Christ wants you to see victory. I want to see you have victory. But as Paul moves on, we move on to follow as he talks about our words. And again, so what he's doing here in, in the whole scheme of the, the, the six things that he's listed is he's, he's start, sexual immorality starts physical activity outside the body and he moves and he calls out the, heart, the head and he calls out the heart and then out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so he deals with our words that then flow out of our heart asking, where is our heart? And what Paul is talking about here, again, is not disparate images, left field, right field, center field. He, he's, he's talking about off-color jokes. We all know it, right? That joke that skirts the line of innuendo. The, the, the joke that hints at sexual immorality but keeps it just humorous enough to disarm us from the flaming arrow aimed at our hearts. I've been rereading the screw tape letters in letter 11 uh, Screwtape is writing to his, his nephew Wormwood and he's talking about jokes. He's talking about humor. And he, he, he says this and he's using the illustration of cruelty. He says, cruelty is shameful unless the cruel man can represent it as a practical joke. Humor can blind us to what's really being offered. Humor can distract us. And this, and, and, and this isn't meaning that you can't be funny. This doesn't mean you can't make jokes, right? Jim Ashford would, wouldn't know what to do with himself. If, you know. 
But where, what are our words? What are our jokes? See, words have a way of kind of softening our resolve. What we say has a way of softening our resolve to begin to create the thought, well, it's not that big of a deal. Maybe I can, you know, it's okay to laugh about it. It's like, like a, a, a bug zapper, which we've used this illustration before. Um, there you go. <clears throat> when he talks about words, he's saying it, that can easily cause you to begin to look and go, oh, you know, well, it's not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. It's okay to joke about it. But as attractive as this can be, it leads to the bug's death, right? It leads to death. This is why Paul opens the concept of, uh, say, good. This is why Paul opens up with the concept that it, it, you should, there shouldn't even be a hint of it among you. There shouldn't even, it shouldn't even be named among you. Now, no, this doesn't mean that we're not to speak about sexuality. We better because the culture is. But we need to speak and understand rightly ordered sexuality to counter the disordered sexuality that is being presented to us. Parents, please have these conversations with your kids. Don't let this conversation be taboo. The same thing happens in the church, right? We, we let it be taboo. We, we don't really talk about it, and it gets kind of all awkward, and heads go down. And, and We need to talk about biblical sexuality because whether we like it or not, we are being inundated with unbiblical sexuality. So, but when Paul says it must not even be named among you, there must not even be a hint. I like that image because hint carries with it, in light of verse 2 and the fragrant offering that Christ is, hint carries with it the connotations of a whiff. There must not even be a hint of it among you. This is to get close enough to something that you can just get a little bit of a whiff. You know, I, I, I don't, whatever your take is on smoking, right? But have you ever walked out of a building where a lot of people are smoking and then you get home and you can still smell it on your clothes? A whiff, a hint on your clothes. I think the question for us, though, is do we enjoy that whiff? You say, well, I'm not actually smoking it. Oh, it just it reminds me of when I did. It's a good smell. Don't even let it be a hint, a whiff among you. Because that's what happens. It stirs in us our sinful longing that we're still battling with of, oh, those were good days. And we lose sight that the blue light leads to death. We forget that that is our demise. And what we begin to do is we begin to step closer and closer to the edge and not really think about where, where, where we are. How many remember years ago Rick did this illustration and he jumped off the stage? That was a while ago. He hurt himself actually. So I'm not going to jump off the stage. This comes up when kids ask me, how far can I go with my boyfriend or girlfriend? How far is too far? That's the wrong question. That's asking, how close can I get? When we need to be asking, how close can I get to Christ? How close can I get to the true light? Those are the edge questions we need to be asking ourselves. Am I, am I enjoying the whiff or am I looking to smell of Christ? See, what we need, 
When we begin to walk towards the edge, when we begin to walk towards the bug zapper, what we need is someone to say, hey, wake up. You are aimed at your own destruction. You are aimed at something that's going to destroy you. The blue light is not freedom. It's your death. Turn around and wake up. And that's where we find Paul in verses 5 and 6. And understand, when he gives the warning, it is a severe warning. But hear it for what it is. It's a sign of love. If Paul did not love, if Paul was not in constant pursuit of the otherness of someone else, he would have remained silent. But he speaks up. And he says, this is not the path that you need to be aiming for. When pastors and elders, and when we talk about church discipline, that's the aim. To say, wake up. To warn out of love for you and for your soul. And we can agree with church discipline when it's not against us, but often when it comes against us, well, I'm going to do what I want. What I think is best for me. So yes, it is serious. Paul is very, very serious when he says anyone who continues to practice these vices, this disordered, this perverted practice of the world, whether that's because of it's still your old habit or it's the course of least resistance or it's a falsely adopted excuse of, well, you know what, I'm more compatible with this person or this person didn't change the way that I wanted them to. A falsely adopted excuse, whatever it is, To practice such things has no share in the kingdom, in life with Christ. He's saying step back from the precipice. Turn from the false blue light to the true light that we sang about. Your light will shine when all else fades. It's hard to see the blue, right? In the brightness of the other lights. Turn to the true light. This is when, when, when he says this, and then he leads into verse 7. He says, therefore, do not be partners with them. Stay away from bad company is what he's saying. We, we have the tendency to, to conform to those we spend the most time with. Again, the question is not who, do, who are you mimicking, but who are you mimicking? Whose company are you? Are you keeping most of the time? There was a study done in the late 60s. I've talked about this before with youth. I don't know if I've talked about it here. Probably because I'm a broken record when it comes to things. But there was a study done in the 60s that's been repeated over and over and over again. Uh, and it's called the Ash Line Study. And you may have heard of it. And what happened was uh, a guy would be in a room and he'd hold up a sheet of paper and there'd be a whole bunch of people in the room. And, and he would say, okay, what line matches this one? And everybody was in on it except for one guy. So around the room, they'd be like, B, 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 what? C, B, B. But before long, that guy was saying, B, B, B. He was going right along with that. Well, they did the study recently, and they, they were watching, the, tracking the brain to see what areas of the brain light up when this happens. And the, the, the part that lit up was the perception part of your brain. And it hints at this notion that his perception of the line began to change to conform with the group. This changes the conversation of peer pressure. 
Whose company are we keeping? Because before long, what we saw was death, now is beginning to look a little bit like life. So whose company do we keep? To not even have a hint of it. Keep company with Christ. Saturate yourself in his fragrant offering. This is, this is what you do when you spend time in the Word and your personal spiritual disciplines. This is what happens here when we worship together and you make this a priority of your life. You are beginning to take in the fragrant offering of what Christ has done to then go and be. But you and I have to acknowledge our need of this. We have to acknowledge how often we, we, we partner with the culture, how often we buy into the lie being sold to us, a counterfeit love. And we begin to be strung along and aim ourselves no longer towards true north, but to our death. I love the hymn, I Need Thee Every Hour. It's written in 1872. And the beauty of the song is because it captures what it means to keep company with Christ. Lord, I need you every single hour. I need you when temptation comes my way. When, when I cannot stand, I fall on you. I need you every hour. So my prayer is that you would run to Christ And that you would be honest with yourself. And then you would speak up and begin a conversation where there tends to not be conversation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you would keep company with us despite how we so often run elsewhere for our company. Lord, we so regularly get caught up by the blue light and become so attracted to something that you tell us to run from. I pray, Lord, this morning we would catch a whiff of you, that we would smell of Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.